Good morning, Arbor. Adios, Merry Christmas, and hello, Happy New Year, right around the corner, yeah? Indeed. Right place, right time, ready to learn. That's what they say in the school district anyway, as I'm about to get, drop the kids off, off the bus. We're going to be talking about giving up to gain. Giving up to gain, I have to warn you, let's just laugh now because it's going to be a heavy message and I don't know, you may walk out of here depressed, but <laughs> these things happen. And my goal is not to depress you, I should tell you that right away. Uh, but here's an example <clears throat> of me giving up to gain. Uh, I think back to when uh, I was on the college swim team and we would come to our championship meet at the end of the... At the end of the season, all of our dual meets was done, and now it's time for the NCAA uh, swimming meet and so on and so forth. And six days out, we would take the first three of those six days, and we would try and eliminate the carbohydrates from our diet. And we would load up on the protein. And I remember, and I was, I'm a Washingtonian, but I went to college back at Southern Illinois University, and I remember going to the local IGA store and getting... Probably a sleeve of 25 Uncle Charlie's Soy Burgers. Mmm, good. <laughs> As part of the protein load. Because I guess the science behind it was deplete all the carbs and sugars out of your system, load up on the protein for the first three of those six days, give those up, and then on day four, five, and six, then you add the appropriate carbohydrates back in your diet. It wasn't like, oh yeah, go out and buy a dozen donuts and sit in your room and eat them type of carbohydrates, but whatever the nutritional better carbohydrates are for you. But you add those back in, and the science behind it was that your carbohydrate and sugar level and your boost and your fast-twitch muscle fiber, slow-twitch muscle fiber, and you've got in the storehouse now a higher level of sugars and carbohydrates to make you a high-achieving athlete, and it worked once. <laughs> Giving up to gain. That's what we're talking about. If you go back in history <clears throat> and try and put yourself in the country of Germany, it's after World War II, you've been defeated, and the German people are despondent. Severe economic uh, times have depressed the whole area, the whole country, and that's the context in which Germany was at the end of World War I. As those years began to tick off then, all of a sudden a charismatic uh, Adolf Hitler shows up and begins to operate in leadership circles. Many people viewed Hitler as an answer to prayer for the German people. Here's what one pastor wrote. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. Another pastor wrote this. Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler, but not everyone shared that sentiment of Hitler being the solution for the woes of Germany. The image that you have on the screen is of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, theologian, dissident, resistor. He appeared as something opposite of the common attitude regarding Hitler. In 1927, he was 21 years old, 
graduated from the University of Berlin, and he went to, to serve a church in Spain. It was a German-speaking congregation in Spain. He did that for several months. Came back to Germany, wrote a dissertation, which earned him a university appointment. He eventually went to America at New York's Union Theological Seminary. He did return to his post at, as lecturer at University of Berlin. And it was during these years that Hitler came more and more into power and prominence and persuasions. Hitler's actions intensified. His, opposi his opposition did as well. There was a group of theologians and pastors who banded together and they organized what was called the Confessing Church. Part of what they did was they had a proclamation, a public proclamation, that there was to be no higher allegiance to anyone or anything other than to the allegiance of Jesus Christ. There were no powers, there were no personalities, there were no plans that were supposed to trump a person's allegiance to Jesus Christ and his revealed will in the Bible. In 1937, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It was a call to a more faithful and radical Christianity. It was a rebuke of mediocre and soft Christianity, comfortable Christianity. The German government banned him from teaching openly. The German government also closed down an underground seminary that he had been a part of and teaching there. He went to America and became a guest lecturer in our country. Months after arriving, though, his conscience began to bother him. He wrote this to a theologian friend back in Germany, and he said, I have made a mistake coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the, German, with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. So he went back to Germany. Though privy to various plots on Hitler's life, Bonhoeffer was never at the center of those plans. Eventually, his resistance efforts, which was mainly rescuing Jews, eventually those resistance efforts were discovered and were detected. And it was in April of 1943 that a black Mercedes shows up, two men get out, and they arrest Bonhoeffer, and they put him in prison. Fast forward an additional two years. He's been moved around to a few prisons. It is now April of 1945. And they take Bonhoeffer, and they execute him. They hang him along with six other dissenters and resistors. One month later, Germany surrenders. A decade after his death, a doctor said this about Bonhoeffer, a doctor who witnessed 
his hanging. Said, in the almost 50 years that I, have been, that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I suggest, is a, an inspiring example of someone whose life was given over to giving up to gain, giving up to gain the affections of the Father, giving up to gain treasures in heaven, giving up to gain a legacy to leave for other people to get their minds and footsteps wrapped around his classic example of someone. And so the title of today's message, Giving Up to Gain. Giving Up to Gain. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is about to send out the 12. He circled them together, so to speak, in a huddle, and is about to send out the twelves, if you will. And he has a discourse with them, a sermon with them, a data dump with them of so many bullet items, most of which will not be up on the screen and we will not discuss. But I want to list a few of them for you. But again, he's huddled them together. Look what it says in Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease, and sickness. Then the next verses, name the 12. Give us the list of those names. And then you're at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. And again, there's so much in there. I told the first service, you could take the month of January, and if you just isolated a phrase at a time and built that into a meditative quiet time and still time and chair time with God, it would be amazing to see what the Holy Spirit says to each one of us. There's so much there in Matthew 10. They've walked with Jesus. And now, like a parent sending a kid to college, perhaps, the enormity of that empowerment and anointing and, and blessing upon them, and then there they go to, to, to carry out the mission of Christianity. What he tells is it's ominous, the weight of it. It's not Christianity 101, it's Christianity 401. They're not packing for a trip to Disneyland. Here are some of the things, again, these won't be up on the screen, but here are some of the things that he has covered in his discourse with them. It's mission-specific. You're not going to the Samaritans right now. You're not going to the Gentiles right now. You are going to the lost sheep of Israel. Your message is that the kingdom of heaven is near. You're empowered to heal. You're going to deal with the demonic. You're going to deal with physical maladies. You're going to announce the kingdom of heaven is near. You 12, you've freely been given, and now you are going to give freely. No hotel is booked in advance. As you go out village to village, town to town, you're going to find some worthy person in that town. And if they invite you in, guess what? That's where you're staying for a while. And you're going to work out of that home. And if you are met with hostility... You got dust on your feet, you just shake off the dust out of your feet as a testimony against them, and then you keep looking. It will be dangerous, Jesus told them. Gave them the word picture of, look, you're sheep, and I'm sending you out to a wolf pack. 
You're going to be handed over to local councils. You're going to be flogged in the synagogues. Again, this is not Disneyland, people. This is missional living on the the edge of the knife. He said, on my account, because this will morph out and expand out, on my account, you're eventually, you're going to stand before governors and you're going to stand before kings on my account and you are going to be witnesses to them of me. I know, I know, you're worried about, what am I going to say? You want me to verbalize that in front of governors and kings? Not to worry. Holy Spirit's going to tell you what to say in that moment because you will be arrested and that will be part of your future. By the way, the message is going to be deemed toxic by most people that you talk to. Brother is going to be versus brother to death. A father versus his child. A child will rebel against his parents. It's all because of this message. But cheer up. You're going to be hated by everyone. Persecuted? Go to the next town. And again, the heaviness of this message, and he throws this in, as if there's not relational and communication pressure and expectation on them already. And oh, by the way, whoever acknowledges me before others, I'll acknowledge before my Father. And whoever disowns me in this host- these hostile environments that I'm sending you to will be disowned by me before the Father. <coughs> Have a good day. Man. They're, again, they're huddled together. It's like a dad talking to his kids. And the heaviness and the weight of this, Bonhoeffer gave up a comfortable life in the good old USA and thought, I should be back with my people. That that more challenged, that more Christ-centered calling, do we do that? Will we do that? Are we doing that? I don't have to worry about your answers. I just have to try and figure out my own answers. Verses 34 through 39. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I thought we just did that whole peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, families are going to be divided over this toxic message. For I have come to turn or to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. (laughs) It just, I want to say, ouch! 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Taking up our cross from verse 38. In that Roman culture, in that Roman uh, empire, when a criminal was convicted and was then forced to carry 
that cross through the streets to the site of execution. It was an unspoken, it was a non-verbal sign, symbol, demonstration of you, criminal, are submissive to a higher authority. You have come under the rule of someone else. That's why you're taking up your cross. And so for the Christ follower, one who says allegiance to Jesus Christ, the cross representing we are, we are submissive to a higher calling, a higher agenda, a higher will than our own desire. The cross being a symbol that represents obedience to the will of God, whatever it entails. And follow me in verse 38, an ongoing, sustainable walk in life, direction in life, determination in life for that whole journey. Follow me. Lose your life? I thought we were supposed to find our life. Jesus' recommended recommendation is to lose life. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm probably in a room of like-minded people who typically, we are the king and queen of our own realm and our own territory. And as the king or queen in our own territory, we tend to operate by waking up in the morning, and I would like to order my will, my way, and my wants, please. Supersize them. And that's what we have to die to. If we're going to find our life, you know, we've got, this is my plan. This is my five-year, 10-year, or whatever that looks like. And really, Matthew 10 is saying, give up that realm and that rule and ask God for what his will, his plan, because then you'll find life as compared to generating it selfishly without consultation from him. Submission to the one that we have rebelled against, that's the better life. That's the gain. So Bonhoeffer, giving up to gain. We as disciples, giving up some preconceived idea or preferred future that may or not include the heart of the Father. I ask the question, why is this such a struggle? Why is that hard for us? Maybe I'm, just talk, maybe I'm just preaching to myself, but that is a hard thing to die to for me every day. Even in sermon prep this week, and also knowing my daughter and son-in-law and their family are moving, how much do I drill deep in this? How much do I sacrifice and give them time? How much do I oversee a granddaughter that we are raising? And I'm just dealing with all, all this stuff, and it's like, this is hard to die to. It's a very dynamic situation. You deal with that every day. Why is this such a struggle? Let me give you four reasons. I'm sure we could have many reasons, but here are at least four. The first one, and I put this first because I think, it is, I think it's our default mechanism. I call it self-rule. Self-rule. Favorite TV show for me is Deadliest Catch, and way back, whatever the first season of Deadliest Catch was, I think they had a, a <clears throat> boat, a vessel, that was called uh, the Fierce Allegiance. I have a fierce allegiance 
to wanting to do my own thing. That is self-rule. And I think because of sin and what the Bible tells us about our sin nature, that, I believe, is our default mechanism, self-rule. Fierce allegiance. James 4, verse 6 says this, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud. It's a military term. God sets himself up against the proud. I don't know if the Holy Spirit is saying something like, you want a piece of me? But he sets himself up against the proud. He gives grace and favor to the humble. Luke 9, 23 from the message translation, then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come to me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. And so if we let go of the steering wheel, okay, Lord, I'm going to move over here to the passenger seat so I don't have to do this anymore, but I can tell you where to drive still and how to operate and manage my life. Right, Lord? In my early 50s, uh, I came up to a, a season in my life where I, I, my self-rule was ratted out. I got called out. How so? Excuse me, how so? Because I was depressed. At some point in my early 50s, I realized my professional life does not look like I thought it would look in my early 50s. My family life, with a couple of situations that were taking place at the time, did not look like I assumed it would look by the time I arrived in my early to mid-50s. And I was, I was not just upset, I was mad. I was disappointed, I was mad, I was Mr. Grumpy Pants. Conversations with my wife, and also going to my medical doctor. Probably doesn't work real well when I scratch my... I won't do that anymore. <laughs> Went to my doctor, talked things through with him, and got on some antidepressants. Because I couldn't find my buoyancy. I was just on that edge of darkness and anger and, and yet every day, and it's not like I pulled the sheets up, okay, I'm going to stay in bed for 14 hours today because I hate everybody and everything. I just functioned with this depression. So I went to the doctor and got on some antidepressants, made a commitment to my wife and to my doctor because you know how antidepressants work. All of a sudden, you get a little bounce back in your step and you think, hey, I, I feel better. I'll just quit taking these now. Sometimes that takes you to a worse spot than you were before. So in that season of being on antidepressants and then feeling better and then talking to Jill and talking to my doctor and then, okay, well, let's cut the medication in half. Roll with that for several weeks or whatever that was. Then let's cut that half in half again. Then got off of those and then monitor how you're doing there. Self-rule. 
I had assumptions about what my life would look like, and it didn't match up to what my life looked like. And I had a hard time processing that, and I'm a slower processor to begin with. Self-rule. Fierce allegiance to ideas that I had about my own reality and position in life, and it didn't match up with what I was experiencing. Why is this a struggle? Point number two, slippery altar. Slippery altar. Romans 12.1. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. And you know how those defining moments are? where we're beautifully and powerfully under conviction and we come to God and we put our life on the altar and we have clear thoughts, I don't want my own life, I want to lose my life so I can find it in you and here I am, Lord, and we present ourselves there. And then either the altar is slippery or just maybe sometimes our commitment is slippery. And it slides off. And we're back where we were before we were contrite and broken. The picture up on the screen is of a woman named Amy Copeland. Read an article from a year ago. And she referenced a time when she was 24. It was 2012. She was a waitress. She got done with her shift. She joined together with a couple of her girlfriends, and they went out to a local stream, a local creek, local riverbed. Uh, hot. So let's go swimming. Good idea. They were there, and they noticed, hey, a couple of these trees have a zip line above them, about six feet above the water. Started doing runs on the zip line. On Amy's second run on the zip line, the zip line snapped and she fell the six feet down to the rocky, shallow water. Gashed her left calf area significantly. So much so that there was clear blood loss as well as it was, happened in this murky water. They bounce out of there and they go to a hospital. They have a medical procedure done and they put 22 surgical staples in her calf, and then over the next 24, 48, even 72 hours, her condition worsens. She says this, three days after the accident, I woke up and my entire left leg had rotted overnight. Rushed back to the hospital, Doctors immediately diagnosed her with a rare and ferocious flesh-eating bacteria that can be found in warm, brackish waters. They had to amputate areas of all four of her limbs. During the time she had a, uh, and she's made an amazing recovery and has learned life all over again. At the time, she had a boyfriend who hung with her for a while but then a few years later, she could tell he's losing interest in me, and they were picturing a future together, and she realized his heart's elsewhere. 
So it was December of 2014, two years after the accident. He said goodbye to her. They broke up. She talked about it. it was really difficult. But then she said this. Copeland says their split is what ultimately enabled her to fully embrace the life ahead of her. Quote, the person I was before had died. This was the new me. It reminded me of what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Of course you, of course you live. You go to bed, you wake up, you eat, you go to your job, you, you live. Paul's saying, no, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The verse goes on. And the life, but, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just this constant, I'm trying to get orders from headquarters as I live my life in this body. Jesus, what do you want me to do? I've been crucified with Christ. Point number three, sync with the world. You might think of it as friendship with the world, but we sync up. We sync up our cell phones with our tablets and with our PCs, and we sync and we sync and we sync. Do we sync up with the world? Do we climb off the altar? Do we have that fierce allegiance to self? Do we climb off the altar because we sync up with the world because the world is saying to us continuously, you'll be happier over here. Come back. Or you need this or you want this. And we sync up with the world again. And happiness is so fleeting. I wasn't happy last Thursday. The Cougars lost. I wasn't happy yesterday, the Huskies lost. I don't know if I'm going to be happy at 4.30 today. (laughs) James 4, verses 4 and 5. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you'll end up enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he is a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. I think the world whispers to us, come back. Get your bad self back here. Or the world shouts at us, loser! <laughs> How's that Christianity working out for you? Loser! You don't even have any fun anymore. Come back. Come on, all your friends are still here. Searching for happiness. Victor Frankel lived through the Holocaust and concentration camp experiences. He saw firsthand how people deal with unhappy circumstances. As a psychiatrist, his observations during that time formed the basis of his book, Man's Search for Meeting. 
he found out that people stood the best chance of surviving a horrific experience were those who had some sort of meaning in their life, some sort of purpose in their life, which is way deeper than happiness. For Frankel, it meant providing therapy to others in the camp. As Frankel put it, once a person finds meaning, they know the why of their existence. Happiness is a nice visitor. It's wonderful to have happy experiences, absolutely. But we've all noticed that happiness doesn't move in and take up residence and stay permanently. We're only moments away from another disappointment in life, and the world will promise a lot of happiness, but it can't deliver. Romans 12.2, as far as sync with the world, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. The force of the verb is really saying, stop doing what you're doing. Or the, the force of the verb is saying, continue to refuse to do what the world wants you to do but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that transformation process that'll take us to where we draw our last breath because we're all under new management in the kingdom. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and prove, approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And let's not forget this too. This would be reason for it. Why do we struggle with this? Why do we struggle with dying to ourselves? We have this strategic enemy. 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert and of sober mind. If we're in a, 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 a department of forestry situation and your job is, all right, you go to tower number 12 and you're going to live in that tower, and you're going to be on binoculars, and you see a forest fire, you radio back in. Do we want that man or woman to be alert and of sober mind, or do we want them to be on their cell phone and playing video games? We want to know if a forest fire there. Be alert. Be sober. And that's how we're supposed to be regarding our enemy, the strategic enemy of Satan, who knows our vulnerabilities, who knows our temptations, and who can throw us off of the narrow road that leads to life and throw us back to the wide road that leads to destruction. And most are on the wide road that leads to destruction, according to Scripture. Strategic enemy. How about in Luke 4, verse 13, after Jesus has been um, fasting for 40 days and the enemy comes and tempts him? And basically says, look, this would be a good time, Jesus. Let's negotiate. Let's talk deal here. How can we broker a deal? I'll give you this if you just do this. And Jesus overcame all of that with his reference point of Scripture and quoting Scripture. But Luke 4.13, the... That completed the testing. The devil re retreated temporarily, lying in wait for another opportunity. I'll be back. I lost this one. I lost this battle. I'll be back. A couple of suggestions for applying this. 
couple questions to ask ourselves. And again, take some time to carve out some alone moments, some chair time with the Lord. Here's a starting point. Do I love anything more than Jesus? I wish I could tell you that every day I would say, no, I I always love Jesus more than anything else. I'd be a liar. Love for God is to be that supreme motivation in our life. Matthew 10, we read this earlier, but I'm, I'm circling back on this. Matthew 10, 35 to 37. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We just had Christmas. We're doing family stuff. We love one another. Occasionally dysfunctional. But those relationships that we prize and we take pictures of and we put them on Facebook and Instagram and tweet, Twitter, twat, whatever, are those the supreme relationships? Or is Jesus over all of that? And these are part of the good gifts that he has given to us. But he's the umbrella holder. He's the relational canopy upon which everything else comes underneath that. Do I love anything more than Jesus? Our other relationships. Moms and dads that have new, newborns. And you are absolutely delighting in the beauty of that as you should. Is that prized more than our relationship with Jesus? Question number two. Is my crosswalk sustainable? Is my crosswalk sustainable? Luke 9.23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple, what's the next word? Whoever wants to be my disciple, what's the next word? Must. Deny themselves. And take up their cross. How often? Daily. And follow me. And that that sense of deny and that sense of take up, those are a considered action, a contemplated decision. And Jesus is saying, I'm expecting you, you have to do this every day and follow him. And none of us have ever mastered that and greased that every day. So we're still in process, so we still work at it and we still come back and we get back on the altar So we give up to gain. What do we gain? We gain the affections of the Father. And we remember what it's like as children to have the affections of our parents. That mattered. That was important. We want to be pleasing to Him. We store up treasures in heaven. And we also have the powerful possibility of leaving a legacy. Wouldn't it be awesome if our kids said, we remember when mom and dad said no to themselves. 
as they were making house decisions or financial decisions or car decisions or employment decisions, whatever those things were, and you're able to download that to your kids saying, here's why your mom and I made the decision that we did. And where they can be part of that next generation legacy of dying to self. In closing, I'll leave you with this. A buddy of mine is a pastor at large back in the Philadelphia area. He shepherds a variety of people. Yes, he participates in the local church that he attends. He's not a staff member there, but he's a pastor at large and he oversees a foundation and he shepherds people for the kingdom. One of the things that Greg does is he goes to hospitals, a couple different hospitals in his area, and he visits cancer patients. And he wrote about a patient named Lucy. That's not a real name, but he says this. As he went into her room and he asked if he could pray for her. Lucy replied that I need not pray for her healing, but for her purpose. I explored that further And she explained, in effect, that she believed that Christians are protagonists in a cosmic drama. What's more, Lucy believes that we are assigned a finite number of scenes in that drama. Lucy suggested that she was presently assigned a dark and difficult scene and wanted very badly to read her assigned live lines, her assigned lives well, thereby displaying the beauty of Christ amidst the darkness of her surroundings. This with the hope that the contrast she displayed would even be more compelling than would be possible in a bright or a well-lit scene. What mattered to Lucy was not how many scenes she was assigned to, but how well she played her role and read her lines in the scenes to which she was assigned. Whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. Let's pray.